Welcome to the inaugural podcast of Common Sense Leadership with your host, Dr. L.D. Bennett. Common Sense Leadership is an influencer podcast that will make you think, laugh, and act. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's join our host, Dr. L.D. Bennett. Hi, this is L.D., and I'd like to welcome you to week four of this month's theme, Now What? From Performative Support to Meaningful Social Change. And I tell you, I am super excited about my guest today, Dr. John T. Cooper, Jr. And let me tell you, I met this guy a few years ago. Uh, we were both at, uh, I think, a Homeland Security uh, Emergency Preparedness Disaster Awareness thing. And I was so impressed with him. I'm like, okay, so who's this guy across the room that keeps saying all these really, really smart things. And uh, he and I met, we got to be friends and both of us are from Chapel Hill. We did the Chapel Hill thing. Notice my Carolina blue top today. Uh, and so John, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to join you. All right, so let me just say a little bit about John and then I'm gonna have him to talk about uh, his journey and a lot of the things that he's doing regarding public-private partnerships and collaboration. I thought this would be a, a great way to kind of recap a lot of the things that we've been talking about uh, throughout the month. So uh, John holds a dual-hatted role at Texas A&M. Uh, all you Aggies out there, this is a Texas A&M guy. And he is the Assistant Vice President for Public Partnerships and Outreach. And he is also the Director of Texas Target Communities. Uh, Dr. Cooper, I call him John, but he is Dr. Cooper, and he is doing some great work around public-private partnerships and how uh, that collaboration can help us not only with disaster preparedness, but also how it can help us as we're moving towards uh, positive and meaningful social change. So, uh, Dr. Cooper, if you would share with us your leadership journey. I know you're a Texas guy, but you spent quite a bit of time in North Carolina. So tell us about your leadership journey and then how you got to the position that you're currently in, especially being an African-American male. So if you would, please. First of all, thank you for the invitation. And I want to uh, shout out my fellow Aggies, Roland Martin and uh, Thomas Mile from the Steve Harvey Morning Show. Uh, I was uh, uh, born and, and, and raised in uh, rural Northeast Texas, uh, went to a uh, small high school. I think there were probably 90 people in my graduating class. And uh, I um, wound up going to Texas A&M for my undergraduate and graduate degrees. And, and, I, and I chose Texas A&M because uh, there was a time when my dad uh, was laid off from uh, a job at uh, Lone Star Steel. It was a steel manufacturing plant. And uh, he took a lot of part-time work. Uh, and one of the jobs he did was uh, cleaning a local uh, doctor's office. And uh, I would help him uh, on the weekends when, when he had to do the bulk of the uh, floor buffing and, and dusting and that kind of stuff. And uh, one of those times I noticed that uh, all of the doctors in that office had degrees from Texas A&M. So, you know, I figured, uh, you want to be a boss, you got to go to Texas A&M. So that's why I wound up going there. But uh, uh, and, uh, you know, my story is not unlike a lot of other uh, uh, young black males from you know, low resource, marginalized places. I was discouraged from going to Texas A&M because, uh, you know, a person who looked like me from where I was from uh, wasn't expected to uh, uh be admitted and, and graduate from Texas A&M. But uh, six years later, I had a, a master's of urban planning uh, and uh, was poised to go into the PhD program at UNC. I'm not saying Texas A&M was uh, 
uh, was easy. In, in fact, from uh, where I was sitting, uh, I probably couldn't even see the top of my graduating class, but but I was in the class, right? <laughs> so, uh, and I'm uh, so I got my master's in urban planning, and it was around that time that uh, my graduate advisor was uh, uh, leaving Texas A&M to go to UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, he encouraged me to apply for the PhD program, which I really wasn't interested in because uh, uh, at that time I was probably 24 years old, had a master's degree. I didn't know anybody uh, in my family or in my you know, friend circle that had a master's degree. I was uh, you know, satisfied, probably burned out from going to college. So I really wasn't that interested in it. But uh, one of the reasons why uh, my uh, advisor, Dr. Phil Burke, um, wanted me to think about the PhD program is because we, well, he, he was in the field of uh, environmental uh, planning and had a specialty in planning for disasters. And he said to me at the time that uh, the field lacked some diversity, it lacked some perspective from people of color uh, on the issues facing um, uh, people of color in, in disasters. And uh, we still have a lot of uh, room to grow in the field, but at the time, you could probably take all the black people who study disasters and put them in a broom closet. So um, what he was trying to do was to diversify the field. And, uh, uh, you know, around that time, I'd also been reading up on the environmental justice movement. And uh, you may know that uh, it's got it's maybe they get it starts, but but it was uh, um, at a flashpoint in North Carolina at the time. So uh, I applied to the PhD program, one out of respect for Dr. Phil Burke and, and for another reason, I wanted to go and be uh, a part of the environmental justice movement as it was evolving uh, in North Carolina. I wanted to enlist right in the environmental justice movement. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I got waitlisted and someone who uh, was admitted decided to go to MIT instead and I wound up uh, getting uh, admitted into the program. And so I, I was there in the program uh, for about eight years, actually. I, I took some time off to work with the Division of uh, Emergency Management. And at that time, I, um, uh, I was uh, part of the team that responded to the hurricane that hit Princeville in 1999. I don't, do you remember that story? Um, so Princeville is uh, today, uh, there might be some dispute with, from some folks uh, in other parts of the country, but uh, a lot of people uh, claim Princeville is the oldest surviving uh, town founded by uh, newly freed slaves. It was uh, founded right there on the banks of the Tar River. Literally, uh, the, the newly freed slaves went down to seek the shelter and safety of the Union encampment and they built a town there. And by 1999, I think the town had flooded something like nine times. And uh, while I was on the ground in Princeville, that's when I first uh, started to understand the importance of, of building capacity in uh, low resource places, um, uh, working with people to um, uh, kind of plan for themselves, plan and do for themselves. Uh, I finished the PhD and I wrote a dissertation about the extent to which disadvantaged populations are, are accounted for in disaster plans. And, and, and I found a lot to be desired. I looked at a national sample of plans and discovered that uh, there was just not, not a lot. And, and I was very and a generous in, in, in my coding of the plans. I was looking for any indication that uh, local planners were reaching out to people of color, involving them in the process, taking into consideration their uh, issues and concerns and capacities in, in coming up with strategies. And, and, and I didn't find a whole lot. Um, one of the things I concluded was that even when emergency managers believed in the, sort of in the efficacy of uh, inclusive planning, wasn't something that they 
they knew how to do well. Emergency managers, for the most part, still to this day, are trained in top-down leadership models, command and control models. They're not uh, community organizers. They're not community builders. And so um, I finished the PhD and wanted to write a guidebook for emergency managers to teach them how to do that, how to engage um, uh, kind of uh, populations that typically aren't included in planning, how to, how to do that meaningfully. And uh, despite all the time that I spent uh, hanging around with the environmental justice uh, movement, some of my mentors in the environmental justice movement, I, 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 I didn't think that I was uh, skilled at it myself. And so I wound up, uh, instead of pursuing a, a, a academic job, I decided to go work for a nonprofit where I learned the principles and, and, and methods of community building. And I was at that place, NBC, based in Durham, North Carolina. I was there for about uh, eight years before uh, getting recruited back to Texas a and to um, serve as a professor of the practice and director of the Texas Target Communities Program. And uh, I, I'm gonna try to cut to the chase here. I know you don't have a whole lot of time, but uh, no, in, in the, in the process of, well, in the process of carrying out my work. Um, so as a professor of the practice, my job is to, to teach undergraduate, senior level undergraduate and, and graduate students uh, principles of uh, planning practice. And my approach to that is to work from the inside out. I want to teach them about um, you know, personal and interpersonal leadership. And then I taught them about collaborative work before we ever got into, well, how do we engage the public in um, inclusive planning programs. So I did that uh, in the classroom. And then as part of the classroom work, I would manage the um, service learning program. So we would connect the students and faculty in the, in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Urban Planning at Texas A&M. We would connect them to um, opportunities to do hands-on work with community partners. Right? And so my approach to doing that was to be um, opportunistic, was to be as resourceful as, as possible. So I didn't limit myself to working with faculty and students in the uh, in the department. I always saw the entire Texas A&M system as a resource. So I was reaching out to faculty in other colleges, other departments, even other universities in the system. Right, and so um, from day one, I treated my departmental level position as a university level position, and then uh, a few years into that job, I actually got promoted into this university level uh, position as assistant vice president for public partnership and outreach. So whereas before I, I had to go through a department head who then had to get permission from the dean and then, you know, so forth. And to now I, I have the kind of the wherewithal to uh, or, the, or the line of sight to be able to call deeds up directly uh, to do the work that I, I get to do. So we work primarily with uh, um, rural towns, uh, small towns, rural counties, and um, as often as possible, uh, marginalized neighborhoods within urban places like Houston. So. Mm -hmm. You know what, you know what, John, you said something I, I, I just, I was looking down making some notes because a couple of things you talked about, I want you to noodle out just a little bit more. You, you talked about uh, first, just the lack of diversity in uh, around environmental justice. And I think with all of the talk and all of the conversation around uh, uh, climate change and, and some of the things that are going on in the marginalized communities, I think this is a, another way that we can effectuate social, positive social change 
by raising awareness, becoming more involved. So if you would talk a little bit more about if I'm in a community, I see some things that are going on and I want to get involved, where would I go to, to say, hey, involve me in the planning in my community? What would I need to do? Or where should I start? Ideally, if there yeah, a lot of places I work don't have uh, full-time planners on staff for them and I have the resources that are consultants. And so uh, they come to us uh, at Texas A&M, which is a land-grant university, come to us uh, as, as a last resort. But if, but if I were on the citizen side, um, one of the lessons I learned in my volunteer work with the environmental justice movement in North Carolina was that uh, too often um, our communities are reactive instead of proactive. In other words, um, uh, by the time they figure out what's going on, often that, often it's too late. You know, the permits have been granted, you know, the deals have been made, backs have been slapped, and, you know, and so they are kind of trying to fight off something that's, you know, at that point, inevitable. Uh, but if you understand the process, if you understand that first they have to get a pro permit and the permit comes from the local uh, planning office, the permitting office, whichever one it is, uh, I think uh, if you if you're civically active, if you, if you stay in the loop, what's happening in meetings, um, sometimes you can get a, a wind of something that they're thinking about and, and you can go and, and uh, force your opinion, mobilize other people in the community before uh, they vote on it, right? And so uh, to the extent possible, being proactive is key, I think. Uh, you know, uh, that led me, that leads me into this next piece, which I'm gonna ask you about is on uh, just the whole participatory planning and the collaboration part of public and private. And I, I totally agree with you that so much of what we're seeing and so much of what we have seen in the past has been reactionary. Things have already happened and we're talking about it. It's already happened and we're complaining about it and it's done. People will listen to you, but basically the deal or the or whatever the project is, it has been done. What would you say to communities that are looking to engage? Hey, we, we have a community that wants to get involved, but we don't really know how to engage on the private level. How do we then you know, kind of break into it if we are a small community or if we are a burgeoning community? And many of our communities now, they're so diverse. How do we get together and then connect with the right public-private partnership? Uh, in this case, now I'm going to put in a plug for places like where I work. Uh, there are places like universities that offer kind of guidance, technical assistance to communities. It, it's part of uh, the mission of our land grant university and, and people who pay taxes. I think the same is true at, uh, in North Carolina and other places where they have publicly funded universities. Usually you can find someone at a university in a planning program, uh, in an extension program uh, that uh, you can reach out to. And oftentimes, now I tell people, you know, you don't necessarily have to know exactly what you want to reach out to me. If you call me, part of my job is to be a broker of relationships, right? And I helped uh, to translate the community's problems into um, kind of things that faculty people understand and vice versa, right? And so uh, people uh, come to me by word of mouth mostly uh, today. And, um, and then when it happens in reverse, you know, but once the connection is made, once the relationship is made, usually people know to come back to me. So I, I would say, you know, find someone um, at a university. I'm speaking because I know universities. It might be true 
uh, of uh, nonprofits also. So I'm a member of the Aspen Institute's uh, Rural Development Innovators Group, and, and, and we talk about um, kind of development hubs or community-based intermediaries, one like the one I used to work at, MDC is a nonprofit. They sometimes have people there who, can, who you can reach out to and you can just ask, hey, you know, where do I go for assistance on this? And uh, with regard to disaster planning, you know, there's a lot of uh, dollars out there to do this kind of work that people don't know about. I think that's where we met. We met at a conference where they were talking about all the resources that go untapped annually because people just don't ask for them, right? And so yeah, that, that's another, you, you have to be willing to ask, bold enough to ask, and you don't, don't feel like you have to know all the answers or know exactly what you're talking about. You find someone like me, I can help with the translation and then we can go from there. Oh, that's fabulous. And you know, um, we were, we've been talking about collaboration. We've been talking about public-private partnerships, but you just hit on something and, and I'm gonna ask you this question and then I'm gonna ask you to give us a call to action, is that when you think about disaster preparedness and disaster awareness, we know that with the climate change situation the way it is, we're seeing more, just more uh, violent storms, uh, just storm after storm. Uh, we don't really know what to expect from the weather and disaster preparedness is something that all communities need to be aware of, but especially marginalized communities. Can you say just a word to uh, folks that are listening that are in those marginalized communities, maybe impacted? So what can you say to us regardless of where we live? Because I'm in, well, I'm in Fort Mill technically. Uh, so uh, in Fort Mill, South Carolina or in North Carolina or any of the places that people are listening to us from. We know in California with the wildfires, Colorado's got a lot of things going on. How do we prepare ourselves in terms of, you know, just really tapping into um, those uh, preparedness resources and context, not just, not just capital resources, but also just knowledge resources. How do we prepare for this if we don't know where to go? What should we do? Yeah, by definition, disasters are things that, that we can't plan for, right? You can never know when exactly a disaster will happen. Uh, we're talking about hurricanes like the ones that have been uh, pummeling the uh, Atlantic and Gulf Coast this, this hurricane season. You never know uh, when they will strike, You know what the severity will be, what the impacts will be. But I think what we can say is that over time, over the last couple of dec decades, disasters have been increasing in frequency and severity and, and, and impact, impacts in, in terms of uh, property loss. And what we know from uh, decades of experience, research and practice is that um, poor people, marginalized people suffer disproportionately due to the impacts of disasters, right? And so the consequences of not being prepared are far, far more severe on uh, poor people and, and, and people of color. Uh, they, they tend to uh, be concentrated in high hazard areas, Right, low-lying areas like we talked about Princeville, they, they, they literally built a town in the floodplains, in the bottoms, where uh, black people couldn't own good land for a long time. And uh, you know, so we wound up in the bottoms. Uh, and uh, poor people tend to be concentrated in housing that's less able to ex uh, withstand extreme forces. And, right, and so you, you got a kind of like a confluence, a, a, a mix that make them more vulnerable than, than other folks. And so again, uh, when you don't take steps to be um, prepared in advance, you tend to uh, uh, suffer disproportionately. And even if you know, uh, even if you believe the threat is real, sometimes because of your lack of access to resources, you're not able to stockpile food or you're not able to 
pack up and move out of harm's way. You might not have uh, the resources to fill up your tank and drive and stay someplace uh, for a couple of days, or you might not have access to credit. So um, in those situations, I, you know, the, the message for me is often to intermediate uh, nonprofit uh, organizations. Uh, I want them to be uh, prepared because it's, while it's true that uh, individuals in households, you are your own first responder. You have to be prepared to take care of yourself and not expect, especially in rural areas, not expect emergency personnel to arrive. Um, beyond that, the nonprofits are the safety net, the churches, the, the other organizations that deal with these populations on a day-to-day -day basis. So when I speak to them, I want them to be prepared for these kinds of uh, events and, and, and know that they will be able to uh, kind of resist and uh, adapt in the moment so that they can be the resource when people have no place else to go. And, uh, you know, I, I want them to, to uh, begin fostering sort of a, a culture of preparedness, if you will, right? And, 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 and do the things that are necessary to uh, anticipate storms. Uh, do uh, uh, reach out to the local governments. I, and I, I know people don't think about it because, you know, you can't know when it's going to happen. And you don't know how bad it's going to be, so how can you plan for something like that? But there are things that we know that happen in every disaster, uh, namely that uh, certain people get hard, hit harder than others. And so, um, and, and I want to say the nonprofits, Hurricane Katrina, um, uh, did a lot to uh, sour the the potential relationship because there weren't very many relationships between uh, emergency responders, the people that wear the badges and the uh, organizations that we've been talking about. So Katrina did a lot to kind of sour, sour the potential for those kinds of relationships because uh, people uh, believe that uh, first responders really didn't care enough uh, to do the right thing. And uh, there are a lot of nonprofits and faith-based groups that decided that they were going to do it on their own. And my message is, hey, we're better together, right? Uh, so. Uh, there are churches that can uh, feed people and maybe uh, house people after a disaster, but you got to get certified to do that, right? You got to be certified to serve food. You got to be, uh, you got to have certain safety precautions and access uh, standards in order to uh, serve as a shelter. So I say work with uh, the people with the badges, the people with the fiduciary responsibility, the legal responsibility to manage disasters because we are better together. So I always like to give the example of how after a disaster, if you got some down power lines, a, a church may be able to organize a, a crew of people who could clear a path to the power line. But in, in North Carolina, Duke Power has to turn on the lights, right? <laughs> right? And so there might be some uh, roads that are destroyed after a disaster. And I don't know very many churches that have access to, to bulldozers and road grading equipment, right? And FEMA has access to uh, uh, tractor trailers that could be filled with supplies. We just need to make the connections so that when FEMA arrives, they know who to talk to. And those people who they're talking to know how to get uh, uh, supplies to the ground quickly. I love that. You you know, <clears throat> you're so smart. I guess it's because you're a professor. Uh, you've already addressed the two calls to action. You gave us something for individuals to do, but you also gave us a call to action for organizations. And as much as I'd love to talk with you, because you know, we just love the brainiacs coming on the program. What I'd like to ask you as we close is, is there anything in particular, any one thought that you'd like to leave uh, our listeners with regarding public-private partnerships and some of the things that we can do as social change is happening 
what can we do? Like you talked about the uh, better together regarding disaster. How can we be better together around social change? What would you say? You know, I, I like um, the idea of calling to action. In these times, I should quote, in these times, <laughs> there's a lot of pressure on um, thought leaders and uh, influencers to uh, have something to say, right? And uh, I feel like uh, that's not always, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't speak always in, unless you know what you're talking about. That's for one. And um, I find that uh, having something to say is a lot easier. Um, there's a lot more pressure to, to do something than to say something, right? People make promises and state intentions all the time about uh, things they, they uh, plan to do, but oftentimes don't follow through. In fact, there, there are some leaders today who make promises knowing full well they have no intention of following through. And so for me, um, I think I want to be known more for my works than than my than my words, and and uh, I, and I know I'm on a podcast now where we're talking, and, and, and the, the format for podcasts is, is about words. But I think what you're doing is you are uh, inviting people who know what they're talking about to come on to talk to say things that will inform and inspire action, right? And so I think uh, what you're doing is in keeping with the the, the theme of. Uh, uh, following through. So, so I guess I just want more people to talk less and, and do more, right? And, 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 and lead by example. You know, <clears throat> Dr. Cooper, you know, so I'm giving you your props. Okay. Uh, this has been great. This has been great. And I, and I do appreciate you for coming on. I know you've got a crazy busy schedule, but some of the things that you were talking about gives us all pause. As we're looking at social change, social change needs to happen on multiple levels. And when you talked about just being more prepared and when you talked about, you know, making sure that marginalized communities are, are better prepared. So many of us, uh, like you and me, uh, we've done very, very well. We're blessed. We've done very well. But when we look back at our beginnings, some of our beginnings are very humble. And I would even say to my audience that look back, take Dr. Cooper's words to heart. And instead of talking about it, look at ways in which we can reach back in our communities, whether they be the communities that we grew up in or the communities in which we're currently living. Find ways in which we can help the situation. Find ways that we can make social change great for everyone and be very, very positive about it. So I love what you said about it. everybody wants to say something. And you're absolutely right. But I, I believe, like you, Actions speak louder than words. Thank you so much, Dr. John T. Cooper, Jr. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and for supporting me. I don't take your support for granted. I am both grateful and humbled. Join us next week for another episode. And remember to subscribe and ask others to subscribe. Go to our website at commonsenseleadership.org for more detail. Thank you and have a great day. This podcast and omni-channel experience is brought to you by the Walter Cates Foundation, the entertainment and telecommunication industry's leading national foundation dedicated to advocacy around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we are proud to have them as our signature partner. We are very grateful for their generosity and for their support. To learn more, visit waltercates.org.
Thank you for joining Common Sense Leadership Podcast with your host, Dr. L.D. Bennett. Visit our website, commonsenseleadership.org, for more details. See you next week.